0: We're starting back up again here, May 6th, with lesson number 25. We'll cover just a little bit about the Sermon on the Mount. There's a couple more things I wanted to say about that in general. And then, in just a few moments, we'll begin with verse 3 of chapter 5, <clears throat> talking about being poor in spirit. But, but first, just a little more about the Sermon on the Mount. As a whole, which pretty much encompassed all of our teaching last week. I'm reading a book that Joel gave me uh, to help me prepare for these lessons, and it's just an outstanding book. It's Sermon on the Mount, Restoring Christ's Message to the Modern Church uh, by Charles Quarles. It is a commentary-type book. Uh, I always, I'm always impressed with these commentaries if they are quote readable. (laughs) That's what I, and I was happy when I flipped it over to the back and looked at the comments from uh, supporting authors and people who were, you know, putting the book forth as a really good book. One of them made that very comment. It's a very readable book because sometimes you get into this stuff and ooh, it's deep. It's like reading. John Owen or something. So anyway, uh, I highly recommend the book. If you want to get it and read it, you would really enjoy it. it when you say commentary, you think, oh, heavy. And I mean, it's, this is great. Um, it's so well put together, uh, highly readable. So Charles Quarles' Sermon on the Mount, Restoring Christ's Message to the Modern Church. And I found it to be very, very helpful. I love what he shares about his preparations for the book, which took place over about a period of six years. He says, during this time I have been privileged to live with the Savior on the mountain, pondering His precious teaching until I heard His voice and I believe felt His heart. And I put that quote in there because that's an encouragement to all of us about studying the Word of God, about taking it and allowing it, just as it says, to to take that in, to literally as it says in Isaiah, to eat it up. You know, and to take it and make it become a part of us. And it's interesting what he says here. He goes on and he says, I've learned the importance of seeking to live in accord with God's character and not merely His commands. So he's talking right there about not just knowing information, not just being able to regurgitate information. Hope you've had breakfast. But to be able to take that into your heart It becomes a part of you, okay, and you understand not just doing the thing, which is better than nothing, I'll admit that. We do what's right. We follow the Word of God, I trust, when we don't understand the Word of God. But to understand the Word of God, to understand why it applies, why a command is given, to see, to be able to see the results of obedience to God's Word is what strengthens us. What builds us That's literally that's the that's the effect of change within us. We have taken that word in; it becomes a part of us. It's what we're committed to, and through that study, God gives us a greater understanding of it. It literally becomes part of us. So He literally shares that experience from preparing that particular work. So uh, I've appreciated that, and I'm already uh, gleaning the benefits of His diligent study. As I hope. You will, uh, as I share information with you, had some information in there too about a Gallup poll that was done back in the late '90s uh, about the Sermon on the Mount. I love these polls. If you put any stock in the polls uh, and their validity, but they're they're interesting in what they reveal. Because he says that this poll revealed that only one third of Americans are familiar enough with the Sermon on the Mount to identify Jesus as its source. Only one third of the people who were polled, he added this, and get a, get a load of this, many Americans believe the message to be a sermon preached by Billy Graham. That's just all they know. That's just all they know about it. Didn't Billy Graham preach? Yeah. But didn't know that, that Christ was, uh, at least only a third of them knew that Christ was the author of that. What would you think that the Sermon on the Mount is best known for? If you had to pull something out or maybe one verse of Scripture, what would you think People would remember. Judge not lest you be judged. Teeter, teacher's pet. That's it. I heard it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what the poll said. And I want you to think about that. And as we get through, maybe we should ask this at the end because by the time we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the end of, you know, chapter seven. Look how much information we've covered. I mean, that 7th chapter. I mean, he even got the golden rule in there. I thought maybe they'd say the golden rule before... No. No, don't judge. You'll be judged, okay? Oh, man. And they don't understand it. Oh, really? A homeless guy. Boy, it was really, really, really ingrained into his... Yeah, even the alcohol couldn't push that knowledge out, could it? Yeah. Wow. He said it's best known for this verse, Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. And that's a good example of people who take the Word of God and literally, without examining their own motives, they even in the Word of God, find excuse, find allowance, if you will, for their sin. Okay? He, he describes it as a verse that's normally stripped from its context and used to support the exaggerated form of tolerance key word in today's society, right? Tolerance. So that's what happens. So taking the Word of God, this would be a good example in a remote kind of way of just reading the Word and thinking that it has an application to your life, when really it's saying so much more than that. You have to dig to get the meaning. Well, that's what the world does and perhaps doesn't know about the Sermon on the Mount. And by the time they get specifically to the Beatitudes, they're pretty well depressed if they're just reading them like someone would read this verse about not judging. Because, it, it, again, it places upon us a burden, uh, a demand, a command that we can't, we can't meet up to. So it begs the question, why? Why did Christ give this? Why is this information here? What is the goal and knowing and understanding, and even as uh, Coral says, to bring this into your heart and embrace it, knowing that you cannot be perfect in this. And we know that, but it is life, life changing. Just want to give you three things again about the broader uh, spectrum of the Sermon on the Mount as we look at it and just give you what I think will be helpful. Um, three basic theological things, or you know, call it what you want, uh, but they're, they speak of true discipleship. These would be, um, you know, three topics, if you will, at the top of the spectrum here. As you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you just literally want to keep these three things in mind. And he mentions the fact that first, that there it teaches us that there is a new Exodus. Now, what you'll see throughout and I wasn't really as much aware of this probably as I should be even after studying Matthew. I mean, he, he, Matthew makes a number of analogies and examples. He pulls together these parallels between Moses and Jesus. And there are tons of them. I mean if you get to looking at them, I've listed just a few here that I'll give you. But that's what it's about. It's important to understand that because that's how Matthew's primary audience, the, uh, the Jewish mind, heard what he was saying. So you have all these parallels between uh, Jesus and, of course, Moses. And this is the way that he presents it. We, see Mo- or they, we often see Moses just as the great lawgiver. That's the way he's put out. We've even already established that he represents you know, the law and the prophets. He does that. But the, the average Jewish mind would have seen him a little differently. They would, have, they would have seen him as the great deliverer, the savior in that context. Okay, the Redeemer, they would have seen Moses in that light. So you look at it that way, it makes sense to compare him to Christ or at least to see the parallels that are put forth. There are a number of things that we could mention, as I said, about this parallel uh, that's reflected both in their life and in the things that they said. Even sometimes Scripture uses the exact verbiage that was used of Moses regarding Christ, for instance, and I just put one here where it talks about Him going up on the mountain. Moses went up on the mountain, you know, for the Ten Commandments. Christ goes up onto the mountain or into the mountain to give us this sermon here, and it's the exact same verbiage is used. The Jewish mind, when they heard that, as you can see, threw them into a different level of understanding. You see how that would happen. They would realize from their knowledge of Scripture that (coughs) He's talking about it. He's using phrases You know, that would be indicative of Moses' life, Moses' ministry, what he did. Matthew does this in talking about Christ. Little things, you know, you go back even when they were born, there was an evil king, right, trying to do away with the babies, you know, at both their births. And then, of course, there's a lot I'm skipping because I'm not going to just go through all of that information. You can dig it up and read it. But I do want to go to Matthew 18, a verse that I'm sure you're familiar with. Beginning with verse 15, because this takes us back to what the Old Testament was predicting about the coming Savior. Matthew 18, verse 15, of course, through 18, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, listen, it says, Like me, Moses talking like me from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you ask of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire any more, or I will die. The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. And then in verse 18 again, he says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through, well, I said it wrong, po- Point pointed out, Deuteronomy, okay, Deuter- Deuteronomy 18, <laughs> okay, Deuteronomy, yeah, 18, 15 through 18, I watched the horns over here, I Yeah, and I, and I still didn't hear myself say it when I went back, anyway, that's what we have, <coughs> that'll happen, that'll happen, <laughs> <coughs> so I was waiting for your wife to do it. Oh, I know it. Thank you, baby. <laughs> so, both are present Redeemer, deliverer, deliverer, Savior. There's tons more. I'm just not going to go there with it, but you have that. And again, the Jewish mind would have interpreted that way. But we have this experience of a new creation as well. You got a new Exodus, and you also have a new creation. And this was presented with both the people who heard the law and began to deal with the demands of the law upon their lives, because we know there's no salvation in the law, but the taking the law, <coughs> excuse me, the long-awaited law, hearing the voice of God, knowing what God's demands and requirements were, put people on the right path, right? It turned them toward God. No salvation in the law. It's not there. But it does show the standard. It was a new day. It was a new day for them. And for those who pursued the way of God uh, and and from their heart were eventually led to the point where they understood grace. They understood the sacrifice. They understood the purpose of it. And there were many who did that. So we're talking about a new creation. (coughs) Pardon. Jesus bears the power today to make His people anew. And we have that on His part. His power and authority were proclaimed by John the Baptist. We've already seen that. There's a number of places. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, where it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, and things have passed away. And look, new things have come. This is what it's about. The Word of God changes a person for all time, and eternity, so we have that, and then lastly, there is a new covenant. A new covenant, so Jesus' death established this new covenant in which the law is now written on the hearts of people. This is quite different. This speaks of an internal change, this is God making the change within a person. Matthew 26:28 where Christ says for this is my blood of the covenant the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And of course we understand the new covenant more clearly from Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 through 34 where he says behold days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, Moses, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. (coughs) And then lastly from Ezekiel 36, begin with verse 24, and I won't read all of this, a longer passage, but these first couple of verses tell us, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. This is the work of Christ, the work of God regarding this new covenant. So we see a new exodus, a new creation, and a new covenant. And again, these are, this is the broader perspective, the umbrella, if you will, uh, that we look down from as we look at this whole passage regarding the Sermon on the Mount. So I wanted to, to share that in preparation for kicking off this morning our first uh, Beatitude. So, the Beatitudes, have you read them lately? I hope that you have. I hope that you read them several times in preparation for our study. We have here with these Beatitudes a series of what can be defined as conditional blessings. You understand that? You do this, this will happen. You do this, this will happen. You find yourself in this state, then this is the possible outcome. So we have a paradox immediately present because this talks about happiness, but it's against the the backdrop of some pretty demanding information, is it not? Of course, this first one here is talking about being poor in spirit, but this is the good news. This is how we come to know God. This is very, very important, very fundamental for our spiritual development. The, The beginning, if you will, of new life within us is all centered around this issue, about uh, this demand, if you will, about being poor in spirit. And then, of course, as we look at the Beatitudes as a whole, we can easily see that there is a progression in these Beatitudes. I hadn't really noticed it, uh, but it's taught there's a progression here, and we'll look at that as we go along. MacArthur says that in a way, happiness, he says, is misery with another name. I like that as you read through here. Just simply misery with another name. That misery endured for the right purpose, the right way, is the key to happiness. Why is it that we're always put on our heels when all of a sudden we realize that finding God's best, understanding truly His Word and its uh, tremendous implication in our life is often demanding of us. It demands change. It demands, I think the best word is surrender. It requires us to look at our life and to look deeper than just what people see on the outside and what they hear, but to look deeper, to look at the motivation for something. Sometimes I feel like I am overwhelmed in my life in trying to determine why something happens as opposed to what happened. Why did it happen? And I think if we're going to minister to people, and more specifically, if we're going to yield ourselves to change in our life, we have to ask that question. If I'm not measuring up, if you will, if I'm in sin, certainly, uh, if, if I'm not where I need to be in my growth and development in Christ, first off, that's a fact. I can see the evidence of it. But why is that? I mean, how hard is it to understand that if we don't answer the why then we haven't identified the problem, have we? We haven't. We haven't identified the problem. And the truth is that some people, most people, literally all people, because of their human nature, do not want to go there. They don't want to go there. When you're dealing with somebody over their sin, that's what you have to show them first of all. You start with what the Word of God says. The Word will do its work, will it not? The Spirit will do its work. But the yielding on the part of the hearer, to take the Word of God and to allow that to begin to change their heart, to literally identify not only what they do, but why they do it or don't do it, that's critical. That's critical in the development of of a spiritual life. So without a doubt, it's an understatement to say that the way of happiness is diametrically opposed to the world's way. And there's all kinds of things that can be thrown into our life, into our mind, into our thinking, that keep us from going to this place, this spot, this time in our life when we do this introspection. We certainly do that when we come to Christ, do we not? We have to know that we're sinners. We have to know and answer that question, yes, I am a sinner because, and we may not all understand it, We're in Adam and all of that right from the onset. But we know intuitively that we were born sinners. We know that. David said, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. But we know that by experience. If we just stop and listen, you can stop and trace your your thought life and your actions and your neglects, your sinful neglects. You can chase them back in your mind. And you know, hey, as a kid, this is the way I thought. This was natural to me, and that's a good word to use. It was fleshly. It was natural. We find a number of examples in the Bible, but the best one, I think, is Solomon, who had it all, did he not? He had it all. and He later gives his summation about the pursuit of things in his life against the things of God, the demands of God. He does that in Ecclesiastes 1, in a very simple yet powerful way when he cries out, Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Can't you just see him looking back on his life and, and just a, just a, a life of, of opulence. The Bible says nobody was ever richer would be than, than he was. And he had all that money could buy. But he says it's all vanity. What advantage, he adds, does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? None of that fulfilled. None of what? Well, I remember somewhere on a men's conference, I wrote down work, wisdom, wine, and women. He had them all. And He had all kinds of things. And nothing, nothing filled that void. Nothing. That was the world's way. He'd been there, as we say. He had done that. And it did not fulfill. Luke would remind us in chapter 12, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Greed. Beware, be on your guard against every form of greed, inspired scripture for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions that's luke twelve fifteen Jesus continued that portion there in Scripture talking about. That's where he follows with the parable about the rich fool. You know, the guy who, oh, i got so much stuff. What am I going to do? I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger barns. And then, hey, I'll have it all. Yeah, well, tonight your soul's going to be required of you. What are you going to have then? Sobering, isn't it? Sobering. Luke 12, 21. He closes. He says, is, uh, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God how do we become rich toward God we have to live in this world we have to work we're commanded we're given multiple examples in scripture about working and doing all that we do of necessity but for the glory of God I love what Paul tells us in Colossians whatsoever your hand finds to do do it with all your might Do it as unto the Lord and not unto men. And I've shared this with you before in different... Revolutionary. Change your whole life. Change the way you see work. Change your outlook. Change your career. It'll do that when you're doing it for that reason. And God gives a specific direction regarding that. I mentioned Thomas Watson. No, I didn't. I mentioned John, John. Thomas Watson here, listen to this. He says, "...the things of the world will no more keep out trouble of spirit..." Than a pauper, than or rather a paper sconce. Help me, ladies. A sconce is like a paper curtain or something, is it not? Is that did I do that right? No. Okay, so it's uh, us light through. <laughs> okay. Well, he uses this as an example. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Google. Okay. <laughs> No, I don't know what I mean. He says the paper sconce, he says it will no more do it than a paper sconce will keep out a bullet. Well, I got that part. I understood that. So worldly delights, he says, are winged or winged. You just knew that paper wouldn't keep out a bullet. <laughs> That's <happen>. right. <laughs> worldly delights have wings. They may be compared, he says, to a flock of birds in the garden that stay a little while, but when you come near them, they take flight and they're gone. Good example. Or again in Colossians 3, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things which are above. This is the Word of God's direction for us. Seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's to say that we're to keep our eyes upon Him. We're to understand the realization that Christ is there to empower us. He's he's given His demands for our life. He's given His commands before He... Transported himself off into heaven. He gave us command. He told us what to do. You know, we know it as the Great Commission. Set your mind on these things above, not on the things of the earth. And there you have it plainly. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So there's hope. It tells us you do this. Don't focus on the things of the world, don't focus on the things that you apparently think you're missing because of your commitment to Christ. No. He says there's glory that awaits you. There is a reward. There is a reward. I, I hesitate to talk about that a lot because that that truth, that spiritual truth, has been uh, changed drastically uh, by our charismatic friends. And When you start talking about that, it's easy for people to get off into another thing where they get the cart before the horse and they begin to think that, that things in life are the reason that we're spiritually obedient, which is, couldn't be further from the truth. It's more about following God and whatever He brings our way, and He will provide for us, as He says. He'll do that. So, that's Paul's admonition to the church at Colossae, and it's the same for us today. Back to the Beatitudes particularly as a group, you've got these, these first four Beatitudes. It says that they are alliterated. Well, I know what that means. And I started looking for the alliteration. I couldn't find it. And then I realized, oh, they're only alliterated in the Greek language. That is to say that the first letter of each of those first Beatitudes is the same letter in the Greek. So that in itself serves to separate that first group of Beatitudes, eight Beatitudes the first group of four from the latter half. Now you may say, well, aren't there nine? A lot of people, they go with nine because it uses the word blessed nine times. But at least I understand it here linguistically if you look at it. That ninth one, even though it begins with, with blessed, is really a commentary. That's verses 11 and 12. That's really just a commentary on verse 10 is the way that's viewed. So, throughout the lesson, I think we'll be making reference to the eight Beatitudes and understand it in that fashion. So, it's one minute till ten, and we're up to chapter five, verse three, with Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, let's look at the words just a little bit here. Blessed, of course, jumps out. The Greek word uh, makarios, I believe I pronounced that right. Which of course means just happy, okay? But happy for the right reasons, not not happy in the world worldly kind of way. It can mean fortunate or a feeling of being fortunate, like life or whatever has smiled upon you. You're you're blessed. I think so many times when people say they're blessed, you know, I think that's the thing that they train the cashiers now to say. Have a blessed day. Okay, you know, we get that a lot at Publix where I'm at. But literally, the word is literally a Latin word, uh, butus or betus, which means blessed. I first thought maybe that's where we get the word butimus, but I realize that's probably not true. Butus, okay, and it means divinely given, okay? There's that connotation that it comes from God. It's divinely given, it's an overwhelming feeling, if you will, of well being, blessed, you know. And there's just some concreteness to it. It's not just like a little experience, it's more than that, you know, more than that. A state of well being. And the indication is, always in context, that it's given only to the faithful, that only the faithful are blessed. Only the faithful. Parallel verse might be Philippians 4, 11 through 13 if you want to mark that down and look at it later. So he uses this word up front. He's going to use it nine times throughout. Nine or ten times. And then poor in spirit. And we could go a whole hour on poor in spirit because this goes back to what we said earlier. You, you have to go to this place. You have to realize that you are... And you're willing to be, you're willing to accept the fact, if you will, that you're poor in spirit. Now, this of course is a person who, I'm speaking of one who's responding to the Word of God. I don't expect a person who's in the world to experience this, okay? They can be challenged like anyone else. But to literally go there and to experience this would require such a state of humility, that you wouldn't be saying, oh, I'm poor in spirit. Now, you wouldn't even say that. That would be beyond the bounds of humility. But it must be a reality. Do you follow that? It must be a, rea- a reality in our life. And there's no re- to ge- reason to give you this unpronounceable Greek word here. But it means deep humility. A recognition. Listen. A recognition of spiritual bankruptcy. People just don't want to go there. They don't want to go to that point because what little security they have in their life, whether it's from relationships or finances or notoriety or whatever they choose to, to hang their hat on for security, has to be done away with. The person has to realize that's not sufficient. I'm still destitute. I still have a great need. I got to be poor in spirit if I want to truly hear the Word of God, and if I truly want to be changed by it. And the Bible speaks of that a number of times. A number of times. I think of Isaiah in chapter 6, when he had his vision there. And he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And he talks about his his train uh, filled the temple. You know... Uh, his example of authority and just overwhelming dominant sovereignty, it filled the temple. And he made this declaration. He says, it's He says, I am undone. One translation says, I am lost. He is at the bottom. He is destitute. He's, he's in the fetal position spiritually. He's got his head covered down on the ground and he's crying out in his soul, God have mercy on me. That's poor in spirit. That's poor in spirit. And it begs the question this morning, have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? And granted, we can get to that point several times as our Christian life continues. In other words, think of it this way. How else could we ever come before God? Moses couldn't do it. He's pictured there at the burning bush just overwhelmed, covered up. John couldn't even do it in the Revelation. He starts out, as Joel preached a couple weeks ago, or maybe in last week, talking about him praising Jesus, bowing down and worshiping Him as Christ is revealed, but yet it's so overwhelming later as the Revelation comes to him that what does he do? He gets so, I don't know if he's in his flesh or what, but he does the same thing before angels. He's bowing down and worshiping angels even to the point where they have to say, get up, get up. I'm just like you. I'm a servant just like you. He's overwhelmed. He can't even find the right kind of expression. He can't do it. We don't have it. We don't like knowing that we're naked before God spiritually, that we're totally dependent upon Him. That requires us to let go, to cut loose everything else that we think holds us and secures us. That's some deep stuff. And that's what he's talking about. Poor in spirit. It's the same It's the same way you would describe as it says a beggar and they use it because these same words are taken and used to describe various things throughout the word of God. Total destitution. Nothing left. You have it with Lazarus in the 16th chapter of Luke. That Lazarus, the beggar, the beggar Lazarus. Who was? They paint a short picture there of his destitution. Remember, he just wants crumbs from the rich man's table. He has nobody to come and minister to him. Nobody, and they, and it gives the impression that they sit there and they see him day in and day out, and nobody has any pity on him. Nobody gives him anything, and it even says that he can't even keep the dogs off of him from licking the sores on his body. Talk about destitution. You have the same thing with the prodigal son. You see it there. Who has the horror of knowing, first off, what he left, what he turned his back on with his family, with his religious life, with all that he had. Now, he's in all kinds of violation. He's in a foreign country. He's in a gentile country where he's not even supposed to be. He's lived a righteous life. He's paying for his sins. He finds himself wanting to eat with the pigs. He's starving to death. A a picture of total destitution. And then you have that wonderful verse there. I think it's verse 17. He says, um, or it says of him, but when he came to himself. And this, this speaks of that period right after, right after this realization of destitution. This experience of being poor in spirit. Being totally down at the bottom. And he remembers the truth. He remembers the example of his Father. But first, but first, he had to get to the bottom. I'll never forget, we had some friends come to church with us here one time. And... uh, They didn't have much to say after the service, they're from a different religion. and I asked uh, uh, about one of the children, uh, an adult child who had had accompanied accompanied our friend here, I I said uh, what was their uh, take on the church, did, did they enjoy it, and the answer was well the lady talked like she didn't really want to tell me what what this person said, and I said, "Tell me, I, I really need to know." And she said, "Well, she said it's just more of the same. Somebody tell me how bad I am." That was the that was what they got out of the service. A wonderful service, I remember, that took us to the cross, took us to the point where we could confess. And Christ could do His work in our life and we could be rejuvenated. We could leave that particular Sunday morning closer to Him than when we first began that day. But to that individual, it was just somebody else trying to tell them how bad they were. So it couldn't have any validity. How blind. How deceived. They don't want to go to this point. Listen, in your Christian life, as you continue. Don't let anything keep you from returning to this point. This is where true cleansing takes place. This is where it happens. I don't care if it's your marriage. I don't care if it's your job. Your service here. Whatever. If there's a problem. If there's sin in the camp. This this experience, if you will, and I speak of it, you know, in its in its truth, as it's presented to us. I speak of not for experience sake. I'm saying when we're compliant with the Word of God, when we approach Him on these grounds, and this is our desire, He will open up our eyes. He'll explode, He'll expose the why. He'll do that. He'll expose the why. All a preacher, a Bible teacher can do is take you to the Word of God. This right here is the work of the Word and the Holy Spirit in a person's life. Period. Blasphemy for any man to take credit for this. And if it does appear to be so, I would say it's false. Because no human effort can produce this in a person's life. Do you agree with that this morning? This is the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. So why is this as I would consider it, a glorious state for a person to be in. Are you kidding me? And here again we see this paradox. (coughs) This paradox of happiness against this type of, of backdrop, this type of experience. Because this is the seat of salvation right here. This is the seat of change in a person for the right reason and empowered the right way. This is the work of God in a person's life. The poor in spirit are those who stand without pretense before God. They're stripped of all self-sufficiency, self-security, and self-righteousness. A quote from Robert Gulick. And he's got it right. Also notice here, you know, when it's talking about (coughs) poor in spirit, there's actually another word. I mean, if I mean, you know, the Greek language is a specific, uh, much more specific language than what we deal with here in English. But there's another word, Pentecost is the word, and it, it refers to just ordinary poverty, okay? That's not what's talked about here. I just wanted to, to let you know, it's a totally different word. That would be the word used like when they're talking about the woman who came and gave the two small copper coins and then she was poor. They would use that word there. But again, understand linguistically, this is something that is so much deeper. Again, this speaks of destitution. Destitution. In the Old Testament, the poor are those who cry out to God. This is what we see. We see this in the Word of God. They cry out to God for help. They depend entirely on God's grace to meet their needs. Thirdly, they have a humble and contrite spirit. We're familiar with those verses. And they experience God's deliverance And enjoy his undeserved favor. It's the way it's portrayed throughout the Old Testament. And each time the word usage and emphasis in the original language implies that the blessings of the kingdom, again, belong only to the poor in spirit. These are things that are received spiritually. Spiritually. It involves a yielding, it involves confession. And then lastly, uh, a word we want to look at, and we have just enough time to finish. He talks about the kingdom of heaven. He adds, he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, those who are poor in spirit are blessed, and he says, remember it's a conditional blessing, because of this, if they are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is how they can experience the kingdom of heaven, both now and now and later in its fullness. A gift from God, not deserved, not earned, only what God can provide. In fact, if you look at this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, you'll see that the Beatitudes themselves are bracketed with this phrase. And by that I mean, you see it in chapter 5 and verse 3 here with poor in spirit. And then you see it again as it closes out the 8th Beatitude in verse 10. So all that's in between is bracketed between the reality of the kingdom of heaven being inherited for those who not only are poor in spirit but avail themselves of these uh, these other demands that we see in the other seven beatitudes. <coughs> he uses this phrase and I think we touched on this way back in Matthew chapter 1 a bit. I know he talks about kingdom of heaven in Matthew 32 times. He uses that phrase. He mentions kingdom of God, which we understood is the same thing. We even pointed out a particular verse where Jesus used the same phraseology in the same scripture reference there, so we know they mean the same thing. Kingdom of God is used five times. He refers to just the kingdom another five times. That's 42 times right there. And then there are other times when he refers to it relating God or to Jesus specifically or even to the Son of Man refers to His kingdom, referring to the Son of Man. He does that twice, and there are three others for a total of 49 times in Matthew alone. He talks about the kingdom of heaven, a present reality. It does have eternal significance. It has a present reality. It has a future significance when we talk about the kingdom of heaven or a kingdom of God. But we focus right now, just for a moment, on its present reality. And you see that even from the words of Christ. For instance, in Matthew chapter 12, we'll see later, verse 28, He says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Christ is talking there by His power, by His works, it manifests the kingdom of heaven being present, being able to be experienced, if you will. Matthew 6.33 challenges us, as most of you know, but seek ye first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. It tells us plainly there that it's something to be sought right now. It's not just talking about in the future. You might think that from reading the verse, but no, it's not when you break that out. It can be possessed now spiritually as Christ lives within us through His Word and through the Holy Spirit. Jesus' statements that depict the kingdom as a present reality demonstrate that His messianic rule was inaugurated during His earthly ministry. This was not one event, but is depicted several times in various ways, all during Jesus' ministry. Let me finish up here like two minutes. <clears throat> You've got it, you see it when the Magi proclaimed Jesus king. Jesus is king at His birth. You have that. God the Father quoted from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. He quoted a royal psalm composed for the coronation of the Davidic kings. And he made that in regard to Christ, talking about Jesus' baptism there and His transfiguration, you see it. So you've got that declaration. The crowds would cry, Hosanna, Son of David, in Matthew 21, 9, declaring Him king. The inscription ordered by Pilate, even, you'll recall. What do they call it? The, the, the titulus at the top of the cross says, is Christ king of the Jews? Remember the Pharisees came in and said, oh, well, you need to change that to say he said he was the king of the Jews. No, Pilate said, no, what I've written, I've written. This shows God's sovereignty, right? That's what was on the cross when Christ died, that he was the king of the Jews. And the Christ pronouncement regarding, he said, all authority has been given to me as he proclaimed his kingship. At the end of Matthew in chapter 28, verse 18, Right before His ascension. So we must remember that what God declares to be completed before its time is as good as done. It's as good as done. This certainly applies to what we know about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. It's ours to enjoy right now. As we begin and continue our study with these Beatitudes, it's going to beg the question, again, are you are you prepared to go there? You know, we we jumped off this morning at the right spot, poor in spirit. And I pray that God will take this word and seal it in your heart this morning. We're out of time.